Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, Kathleen Moriarty discusses A Tale of Two Toscas. This recording was made as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. See Tosca at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion now until December 10th. Tickets are available at laopera.org. All right. Hello, everyone. It is incredible to be here. I love talking to teachers about opera and how to get their students engaged in opera. It is my favorite, favorite topic. I'm here to give you all a bit of historical context. I very creatively named my presentation today A Tale of Two Toscas, Sardou, and Puccini in Historical Context mostly because alliteration is fun, and then also because it really is, the opera we have today is an amalgamation of the work of two artists working just about 13 years apart, and both influenced by the events of the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, specifically the summer of 1800, the setting of our opera. I'm a firm believer in knowing the history behind historical plays and operas, as that can really inform modern retellings and analyses of the works themselves. First off, which two Toscas am I talking about? So the first one, Victorien Sardou's 1887 five-act drama, La Tosca, and then Puccini's 1900 opera, Tosca. Then, as I am focusing on the history, I will move into the events of 1800, the year, and specifically those mentioned in both the play and the opera. So I'm going to talk about Sardou and the time period around 1887 in which this play was written in France, and then kind of compare it to Puccini's Italy around that same time period, hopefully answering the question, why would people at the end of the century use the historical context of 100 years earlier? And kind of overall, the, the legacy, the impact of Napoleon, however bad it was, and how it did make waves through history. And we see that 100 years later in 1900 with Puccini's Tosca. And then finally, ending with my favorite question, and one that students love to ask, why should we care? Or put a different way, why is this still relevant today? So let's start at the very beginning. So the piece that inspired the opera, Victorien Sardou's 1887 five-act drama, La Tosca. So Sardou was born in Paris, 1831, and, and really ruled the playwriting scene of his day with over 70 plays, mostly successes. However, not really performed today in any of their rights, except when people reference to Puccini's Tosca and other adaptations of his works. Some refer to him as, quote, the oftenest referred to and the least read dramatist of modern times. Not a glowing review. So he claimed that he found inspiration from stories told to him by a red-headed old terrorist, referring to the reign of terror from the French Revolution, of course. <laughs> So Sardou, as well as other contemporaries, were kind of heralds of the well-made play, a form of popular drama which depended on complex plots, which we see in Tosca, and surprise endings for effect. So this well-made play 
typically had a well-thought-out plot. It was kind of naturalistic, it unfolded logically, and kind of had feats of theater, which we see when Tosca commits suicide at the end, for example. However, the drawback was the kind of lack of poetry. There was no thought or feeling. There was no social message or, or deep moral to learn. There was that loss of the human connection that makes operas so great. And that is why probably most of his works are not performed today. You need that human connection in order to gain an audience, in order to gain a following. In the 1880s, he cultivated a relationship and collaboration with Sarah Bernhardt and wrote plays with roles for her specifically in mind, including La Tosca, the soprano role of Floria Tosca was written for her, Sarah Bernhardt, as well as his other plays like Fedora, Theodora, Cleopatra, Gismonda, and La Sociere. Although there are no video recordings of the play as which it was formed, there is a silent film from 1908 why would someone in 1887 be circling back to kind of sentiments and events from 1800? It was truly one, this play, filled with kind of catchphrases for ideologies from that times, appeals to nostalgia for a lost but kind of better era for the French. Of course, other countries would not call it better. Depending on where you are was the perspective of the French Revolution, of course. So 1870s, 1880s, difficult time for France the defeat of Napoleon III's second empire in the Franco-Prussian War. There were the horrors at the Paris Commune of 1871, and really the forcing of a third republic from an outside force onto the people. So the time is rife with political corruption and scandal. Just to name a few, there were very many. So General Boulanger's threatened coup d'etat and then there was a son-in-law of the president of the republic was caught selling admission to a group called the Legion of Honor. Just to name a few scandals going on. So this play was kind of full of nostalgia for the Grande Nation of France during the 1790s, 1810s. So the French Revolution to early Napoleon. So it was much more pleasant to look at that kind of government than the shoddy realities of the current government of the 1880s in which Sardou was writing. He created this mix of fact and fiction. There were some factual people, or real people, I should say, and then fictional people who were very much based either with their names or on the characteristics of real people. And he also had this personal little habit in which he changes the real names of historical figures only about slightly and kind of anagrammatically. For instance, here, where is that? You have Baron Sharpa, which is the real Baron who existed, and then our character, Scarpia. So he just changed it a little bit. He wrote a great deal of France's involvement in Italy, as his audience was, probably would not have known how much Napoleon affected other countries, not just their own. However, it tells us kind of less of a 100% historically accurate retelling of 1800 than it does the 1880s perception of 1800. So neither the play nor the opera are meant to be perfectly accurate historical retellings of the events of this time, but kind of express the images of history, the feelings of subsequent generations that were present at the time in which these plays or operas were created. So how did this play go from a somewhat dry 
historical five-act French drama to a three-act, musically expressive and emotionally heart-wrenching Italian opera in the span of 13 years. So we kind of see with Puccini this intersection of religion and history and music coming together here. So we have Puccini, a very young composer. His second opera, Edgar, was about to open, February 1889. He goes to Milan and sees Sarah Bernhardt's performance of Sardou's La Tosca at the Teatro dei Filodramitici. Excuse my Italian. <laughs> and he was so inspired and he kind of saw the vision that this play could become an opera unfold. And a few months later, so that was in February, in May, he writes to secure the rights to musically compose Sardou's play. There was kind of this drama unfolding. There was a struggling period. Sardou had originally given it to another composer. Then Puccini changed his mind, and then he changed his mind again. It was a whole thing. But he eventually did get the rights after about seven years. Seven years of changing his mind about whether to put this to music or not. He finally has the rights. Now we switch to translating, editing, rewriting, and composing, which would prove a four-year-long endeavor. Sardou's play was very densely packed with historical information, and the opera is not, so kind of taking all of that out. It loses its kind of French feeling, its French factors, and he puts more of an emphasis on the religious aspect of Sardou's play. And he kind of changed that old-fashioned, kind of formulaic Sardou's play into this complex opera that we have. Puccini recreates papal Rome, back for its kind of action happening at this time, ideologies also of this time, while simultaneously cutting a great percentage of the specific political detail of Sardou's version. The result? An opera not so bogged down by specific historical or political events, because Sardou's play really was that. There were big, big chunks of just exposition of what Napoleon was doing or what the people believed about France, which is all well and good, but it can get, especially for an opera, hard to compose, first of all. Also, just hard for an audience to sit through that many paragraphs talking about Napoleon. 1887, when La Tosca opened in France, turmoil. 1900, Tosca opened amidst political unrest. So Puccini really kind of was the son of a troubled new Italy that was born into conflict with the papacy and the anti-clericalist movements that stemmed back to the French Revolution. And by anti-clericalists, I mean like kind of wanting to distance themselves from the Pope, from having such strong roots in religion. They were influenced by the French Revolution. Puccini believed that the church and state are hostile and ultimately fatal to an individual's struggle for happiness, a big theme that, uh, that comes forward in the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and that we see for the next 200 and some change years. Sardou's play kind of it does circle around the themes of corruption in high places and kind of the interplay of history and the lives of the characters, but he was striving more towards an aura of authenticity. And like the story could actually have happened how it did through his almost preoccupation with the facts. Preoccupation with telling you the facts of, for instance, the Battle of Marengo, which I will talk about in just a moment. 
Puccini, however, he tried to construct a compelling human story out of this historical piece. It's about love, loss, torment, and individual suffering as a result of the world-changing events around them. It is about the personal relationships of these characters and how they interact with one another, which is why some scholars argue that Puccini made the better version of the Tosca story and not Sardou. So I've explained why a playwright in the 1880s would want to look back at this period of French conflict and ultimate success, if however the rest of the world doesn't perceive it as so. Now why would Puccini be so inspired at this performance at 1889 that he would want to write an opera based on it. So a surprising amount of facets of social organization in Italy were affected even that many years later by the Napoleonic regime. So almost 100 years later, still feeling the effects of his invasion and subsequent rule over Italy. So not only Italy, but all over Europe. He colonized from Russia to the border of France, which is a large piece of land. These facets of social organization that kind of stayed from the Napoleonic era include legal and fiscal regulations, the state's control over the church, and the formation of a national army. Just to name a few, there are many others, including education reform, creation of universities, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So Napoleon's invasion also stirred up feelings of liberty, equality, fraternity, really an active participation by the people in governments. Even if some of these states were created by the French invasion and were just kind of satellites of France, they sparked a nationalist movement. And as the doctor said, not nationalism as we know it today, but literally looking for reasons to create countries to begin with, to unify against an outside power because together you are strong, apart you are not as strong. So, all of these republics were imposed by this outside force, however. So none had the popular support, the populations of Italy's support, especially since the peasantry, with their strong religious ties, were kind of alienated by France's distancing themselves from the religion, this anti-clericalism. So even native republicans, republicans meaning they want to create a democratic republic, became disillusioned when they realized that the French expected them to just be like hangers-on of France and not their own independent nations. So France wasn't coming in here to set up like, we are going to help you set up your government and then let you be free. No, it was really to kind of collect them into this ever-growing regime of Napoleon. And that involved frequent interference in local affairs and also massive taxes to be paid to France, not the governments of Italy. The peasantry was not a big fan of what was going on. However, also the kind of return to the old feudal order was equally as undesirable. So the Republican movement, this desire for democracy, really gradually established its roots. And then after Napoleon came years under the power of other countries like Austria, leading ultimately for the move to reunification, achieved finally in 1871 as the city-states became the kingdom of Italy. Not only that, art itself was deeply rooted in national life. This movement called Verismo, or realism, it was kind of this phase of naturalism in literature and music, characterized by 
fierce passions, violence, death. Puccini would actually get a lot of criticism about the torture and other violences depicted on the stage. And so would Sardou, but to a lesser extent in France. You can kind of think, as we said earlier, that Wagner made his impact, but also kind of the opposite of Wagner. So he was this grand embrace of fantasy, whereas this, the plots at least, were trying to give you that slice of life feeling. So just some characteristics, intense, passionate musical expressions, violent contrasts, and of course, tragedies end with death. Truly a cross-section of life as the opera spans just the 16 hours from a few minutes before midday on the 17th of June, and that's very exact because at the beginning of the opera, the bell for Angelus rings after the curtain rises on act one, to a few minutes after dawn on the 18th of June, when the firing squad arrives as the bells strike 4 a.m. And Tosca frets that the sun is already rising. The quote from the opera. Large crash course in the atmosphere of the late 19th century. Flash forward in time now. Turn of the 18th to the 19th century, so 1800. One of the most impactful moments in European history, if not world history, and really started the great wave, 1789 French Revolution. Mainly kind of the last sort of stage of it, Napoleon's rise, rule, and fall as emperor, or really dictator. Even beginning as early as 1794, there are records of Napoleon's battle victories in the coalition wars at this time. He's starting to gain skill and reputation needed to, in 1797, invade Rome, oust Pope Pius VI, putting him in prison where he would later die, and declaring Rome the Roman Republic, under Napoleon in parentheses, really. And then on the opposite side, so opposing French rule, opposing Napoleon, we have the kingdom of Naples and Sicily, with King Ferdinand IV, a Bourbon monarch, and Queen Maria Carolina, a character in our opera, and also the historical daughter of Austria's Maria Theresa Habsburg, and the sister of Marie Antoinette, King Louis XVI's wife and Queen of France. Both Ferdinand IV and Queen Maria Carolina started out supporting the French Revolution and their ideas until the time at which the guillotines and the French monarchy were killed. They started opposing the French Revolution after that, which makes sense as a monarch, you know? So they wanted to distance themselves completely from France. They began severe persecutions against those even remotely suspected of French sympathies. There are several times in the play where they mention just reading Voltaire will get you put into prison for three years. So they are siding with the British, who have been in opposition to France pretty much forever, but since the revolution started. And they try to free Rome. It doesn't quite work out. They have to retreat to Sicily, and Napoleon institutes this Roman Republic. It only holds for two years, however. Then there's a counter-revolution with the aid of Lord Nelson from the British naval fleets. And the Republicans had been creating this reputation as butchers. So that really helped gain popular support. They put the monarchy back on the throne and again, try to stop any signs of anti-royalist or Jacobin, so French revolutionary sentiment. June 1800, the month of our opera, Troops and police occupying Rome after the Republic fell, the eve of the Battle of Marengo. 
this is kind of the central point of this opera. They act one, they get news that Napoleon has been defeated, and then in act three, they get news again that actually he had won the Battle of Marengo. So we're gonna go through what actually happened. Napoleon was in Egypt in 1799. An Austrian-Russian army defeated the French republics in Italy. Maria Carolina of Austria, the wife of the King of Naples, inspired the Austrian kind of reactionary movement to this. She assumed regency and began eliminating thousands, and by eliminating, I mean murdering, thousands of Republicans and liberals and anyone who even remotely was suspected of supporting French rule. Spring of 1800. Napoleon force, and his forces, of course, cross over the Alps, move toward the town of Marengo in northwest Italy. Here, they were met by Austrian forces commanded by General Malay on June 14, 1800. Napoleon believed that the attack by the Austrian force was kind of a diversion, so he ordered one of his generals, General Desay, to continue searching for the main forces in the south and Napoleon thought he was really losing. This is directly paralleled in act one of our opera. Act one reflects this moment. The sacristan announces the news of the apparent victory of imperial forces over Napoleon. So the character in Sardou's La Tosca says, it's to celebrate a new victory of our army over the French troops. And then later in the conversation, there is, of course, that little General Bonaparte, who is, they say, in Milan. But do you take this General Bonaparte seriously? It made some sense for the old Bonaparte, the real one. But this one, who is false, and then he gets cut off. But that's really saying that the original Bonaparte, the general, the supporter of a free republic, is now being corrupted into what he, he would become, a dictator that would then be killed in 1815. When one has only had dealings for a long time with jailers, tyrants, and other evil animals, you would not believe what a pleasure it is to finally shake hands with a man. So again, very anti-Napoleonic sentiment, calling him a tyrant outright, uh, which he was. And then in Puccini's Tosca, Bonaparte, the miscreant, beaten, crushed, humiliated, Satan has him on the hip. This is in response to saying that the Naples forces had won. However, the Battle of Marengo was not over. Napoleon sent a request for help to one of his generals who returned with his troops and at the cost of his own life helped turn this defeat or perceived defeat into a victory. And we see that during the second act of our opera. The news arrives of the defeat of the Italian monarchy and of course Austria. Mario excitedly proclaims a victory, which further angers Scarpia, who is chief of police for the monarchy, and orders Mario to be dragged off to prison. So he's saying, victory, victory, thou spirit of vengeance awake, let tyrants and myrmidons quake. Freedom, brandish thy glove and strike down thy enemies. Raise thy clarion voice, bid a sad world rejoice. Tremble, Scarpia, thy butterly hypocrite. So also just more quotes about the Battle of Marengo. Um, in Sardou's play, we have an exchange between Floria and Mario. 
in which he said, uh, Florio begins, a letter from General Malay announcing to him that on the 14th day, he fought the French army commanded by General Bonaparte in the plain of Marengo near Alexandria. And then it goes on for about three more sentences just talking about that, but I cut it out. Again, Sardou's play is very historically accurate. And then Mario, quickly, ah, give me, please. He takes the letter and reads it so as to be heard by the hiding Angelotti. The fight, which began at dawn, continued fiercely until three o'clock in the morning, ended with the complete retreat of the French army. It is a resounding victory for our arms. So Napoleon splits his forces. Melas, the, the general of Austria, was so confident in his victory over the outnumbered French that he relinquished command to a subordinate and went to a nearby city to drink and announce his triumph, as one does in the beat of a battle with Napoleon, apparently. The French army forced these Austrians and other Italian soldiers to retreat, and the next day, Melas agreed to withdraw from northern Italy. This dramatic series of events reflects the divided sentiments of the people of Rome. So torn between their loyalty to the crown and the hopes for new freedoms and a change from the old structure that they've had for a millennia. Uh, Napoleon, however, decided to compromise with Italy's traditional rulers and the newly elected Pope Pius VII regained control of the Papal States. And that's why in our opera in 1800, technically the Papal States are in charge at that time. Uh, 1806, Napoleon would kind of get his revenge though, come over, take over most of Europe and establish his empire. The setting of Tosca, every scene does take place in a place that actually exists in Rome today. So we have the Church of Saint Andrea della Valle, the Farnese Palace and the Castle Saint Angelo, the prison in which Angelotti was held and then uh, subsequently escaped from. So what else is true? Of course, the themes of anti-Napoleonic, Jacobin, French sentiment. We see in these quotes from Sardou, a Jacobin, Geranino, a pure Jacobin, in company with the other abominable Voltaire and other malefactors of the same band. Take care, Genarino, that contract with the impious does not lead you straight to hell. Pretty, very strong anti-Napoleonic sentiments there. Scarpia, ah, so little, I mean by his opinions, how, well, thinking as you are, can you exchange three words with this Voltairean without tearing his eyes out? Can't even talk to a French sympathizer without wanting to kill him. And then later, Capriola, provided you do not meddle in politics or religion, freedom is complete there. And I think that was just Puccini adding in his own little thing of saying, don't involve yourself with either and then you'll be free, which kind of works out at this point. And then in Puccini's Tosca, we have how thou hast suffered heart of my heart, but the brutal tyrant shall suffer too. And then at the end of the opera, this duet between Mario and Tosca saying, we are free, free we are, free and happy we shall be. If it ended there, would have had a happy ending but then everything else happened. Not only all of that anti-Napoleonic, anti-French sentiment, but there was this strong growth of what I said earlier, this anti-clericalism. It's just a fancy word for opposition to the clergy for its either perceived or real influence in politics. 
and any corruption of privileges or property. So really just this distancing themselves from the millennia age papal regency that was ruling in Italy for such a long time. And I think Sardo really wanted a strong reaction from his audience, so he decided to write it in Rome. Rome was a city of faith, the center of a world religion. It was also undeniably full of people suffering from poverty. Rome had many programs to help impoverished people, and it wasn't really seen as shameful, but rather a, a Christian virtue. Poverty, humility, and other things that normally clergy take vows of, but the peasantry also kind of wanted to, to connect themselves to the church that way. Rome, the capital of these 13 or so collected papal states, and ruled ultimately by someone appointed by the papacy. And the people have been ruled by the papacy for basically over a millennia, and they kind of liked it that way. Or at least the devout lower classes did. Whereas the aristocracy, uh, so the higher-ups had the privilege of thinking otherwise. They had the funds. French Revolution was hostile to Roman church and Christianity in general. The Enlightenment created thoughts of intellectual inspirations for the re uh, revolution, and it saw Christianity as irrational and obsolete. And the church was an ally of the old order. And of course, the Enlightenment is all about bringing into the new, enlightening people, bringing them into the light from the dark ages, literally. There was a radical upheaval of religion during the French Revolution that kind of spread elsewhere to other parts of Europe. The 19th century architects of the United Italy knew that their nation state could not be created so long as the church centered on Rome continued to make rival claims on the loyalties of the Italians. So it's saying that the papacy and the church in general being so centered around that and having all of governing centered around that is not conducive to creating a democratic republic. For instance, just another funny thing that happened in Sardou's opera, Mario has this revolutionary mustache while the people of Italy were clean shaven. And so that's just another sign of being a French sympathizer is the mustache while having short hair and the fact that he wore boots. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Um, in France, the Catholic Church was seen as an ally of the would-be resurgent Bourbon monarchy, and Scarpia is our representation of a man who uses the power of the church for his own ends. This emphasized religions was not in Sardou's original version, or at least not as much emphasized, and it could be this is the reflection of Puccini's relationship with religion, I think. Um, this church is kind of seen as the enemy of humanity, whereas agnosticism is the only possible position with a God who does not respond to the needs of a suffering humanity. And that's what Puccini did believe. He wasn't an observant worshiper, but he was raised in it. Very strong turning points in his life, he would kind of turn back to it. Like when he was dying, he went and uh, did confession, for instance. Where do we see any of this in Puccini's opera and Sardou's play? So really in the libretto for Puccini's Tosca, the central characters have been almost boiled down, uh, but not in a bad way, insofar as their backgrounds were cut because they were so extensive. So I wanna take you through the main four characters, or at least the main four for me, Angelotti, Cavaradossi, Tosca, and Scarpia. So, starting with Cesare Angelotti, 
just escaped from the notorious prison at Castle St. Angelo and was consul for this short-lived Roman Republic that Napoleon tried to set up. And that's actually quoted in the play. The question Puccini doesn't answer is why was he in prison the first time? Sardou specifically says 20 years earlier, Angelotti became heir to a considerable estate near Naples, visited London, where he met and spent time with a prostitute. Later, once he inherited, he was invited to dinner to meet the English ambassador to the Kingdom of Naples, Sir William Hamilton, and his wife, Lady Emma, who is also the mistress of the Admiral Nelson of the British Naval Fleet who defeated Bonaparte. This Lady Hamilton was also the prostitute of Angelotti, many facets that he had spent time with when he first became heir. They recognize one another at this dinner and Hamilton, the Lady Emma, pressures the other monarchs to investigate suspects of French sympathies. Angelotti's house is raided and two books by Voltaire are found, resulting in three years in prison. A heavy fine for such a small feat. He leaves prison after his three-year sentence, impoverished, and goes to Rome, becomes council in the new Roman Republic. And then after that falls, he is arrested again and put in prison again. And then this is where we find him at the beginning of the opera. He has just escaped prison again and encounters Mario and thus beginneth the opera. The real Angelotti is based off of a Dr. Liborio Angelucci. You can see the spelling. So you see Sardou's, he just changes the name a little bit so that you can still connect it, but it's not technically the same person. Uh, who lived from 1746 to 1811. Uh, he was also in, uh, arrested and imprisoned in Castle St. Angelo for connections with France, arrested, set free, made consul of the new republic. But the change that Sardou makes, rather than being captured as Angelotti is, Angelucci fled with the French. And that's the main difference. Otherwise, he kind of keeps true to what actually happened to the real life, Angelucci. So, of course, when Angelotti flees, he would run into a sympathetic ally in the Atavanti chapel, as is the way of opera, hinging on coincidences, of course, and conveniences. Mario Cavaradossi, painting free of charge a mural of Mary Magdalene. Mario Cavaradossi of Sardou's La Tosca is the scion of an old Roman family. His father, Nicholas, spent most of his life in France, however, and married the French Mademoiselle de Castron, the grandniece of the philosopher Helvetius. While his father was engaged in the social circle of encyclopedists, so just scholars, Mario attended school and remained in Paris throughout the revolution and somehow didn't die as that was happening to everyone else at the time. So he studied art in the studio of, uh, of a man named David, uh, who was considered to be the revolutions and later Napoleon's official artist. Mario moved to Rome just before the French um, ceded that city to the Bourbons, uh, the monarchy. And he remains there at great personal risk because of his involvement with Floria Tosca. And that connects that uh, in the opera. Although his Republican sentiments are betrayed by his donning of 
No breeches or buckled shoes, but boots and his hair, not a powdered wig with a ponytail, but loose long hair and a beard and that revolutionary mustache. He has protected himself somewhat, because these are very overt representations of French sympathies. He protected himself by offering to paint the wall of the church at St. Andrea, thus making a kind of peace offering with the papal authorities. Mario was probably based on a combination of two uh, real-life characters, Joseph Chenard and Giuseppe Caracci, both artists with ties to the um, artist David, and both celebrated for political activities and confrontations with authorities. Sardou's version is charming, intellectual, politically articulate and cool, uh, and Puccini's version is much the same, but without the extensive description of background that kind of gives the audience the motivation behind why he would hide a person like Angelotti. Just shows up in a church and you're like, okay, I guess I'll hide you. Uh, Sardou's version gives a little bit more to those decisions behind what we see in the opera. In the opera, the sacristan mutters of Mario's Voltairean tendencies during Cavaradossi's first opera. In Sardou's play, Eusebius, the same character, just with a different name, becomes Puccini's sacristan and calls the painter a Frenchman, but derogatorily. His French title, Chevalier, his beard, his mustache, the fact that his mom was a Parisian and his dad was a Roman, just kind of all added up to this extreme liberal, a free thinker, a revolutionist portrayal of him. Moving on to Floria Tosca. So the character, born to goat herders, taken to a convent of nuns, she discovers music and gains fame. However, the nuns thought that a music career would send her straight to hell. But the Pope, finally, after going through many different layers of, of the papacy, finally gets all the way up to the Pope, who consents to her release from the convent. And he was even quoted saying, go freely, my girl, you will cause all hearts like mine to shed tears. And that is also a way of praying to God. Tosca is a royalist, so supports the monarchy. Uh, a, also a devout Catholic who regularly consults Father Confessor. Meanwhile, also, coming to terms with the fact that having the affair with Mario means she lives in mortal sin and will probably also go to hell. But he will be there too, so it's fine, because he's a French revolutionist, so obviously he's also going to hell. Sardou's Floria Tosca, sophisticated, vindictive, of course, that is, we see that in the opera as well. Easy of virtue, long on charm, given to tantrums, which we also see. In the opera, there's a stronger emphasis on how pious she is and how religion plays as an aspect of her interactions with Scarpia. So Sardou, he possibly could have read a book with a description of a well-known Italian soprano named Angelica Catalani, who had a similar upbringing in a convent in her life and had that characteristic jealousy. So we see, again, just real-life people. He's taking aspects that he would like in his play and then getting rid of anything that he doesn't want. All right, moving on to our fourth and final character, Baron Scarpia, a Sicilian known for merciless maintenance of law and order. 
Sardou himself described him as, quote, behind a facade of gentility and pious devotion to religion, behind smiles and signs of the cross lurks a vicious, rotten scoundrel. He's an artist of villainy, refined in his wickedness, casual in his cruelty, bloodthirsty, even in his pleasures. And that was Sardou on his own character. In the text, we first hear of him uh, when Cavaradossi describes Scarpia as, quote, a bigoted satyr and hypocrite, secretly steeped in vice and most demonstratively pious, sanctimonious, lascivious, and cruel, a cross between confessor and hangman, confessor and executioner. So while Cavaradossi is singing this beautiful aria, you have the sacristan just making kind of like mean comments about both Scarpia and Mario at the same time saying, oh, this guy with his French leaning, he never goes to church, he never participates in other religious services, must be a French sympathizer. And then also simultaneously saying Scarpia is cruel and a monarchist and, and all the bad things that a man in his position could be. So he truly is the kind of any means justify the ends kind of character, Scarpia, I mean. Always out for themselves as when he realizes that if Angelotti gets out of the city, his disgrace will be immediate. Quote, it's not the queen I fear, it's that Hamilton woman who wants to see Angelotti hang and who will never forgive me for letting her prey escape. That English woman is behind all of this. One word from her and I am finished. Uh, and that's from Sardou's play. Uh, and he is also based on a combination of two figures, Sharpa, alias of Gerardo Curci, and he was made a baron as a reward for the Battle of Cascuccio for inspiring a victory. He also didn't have very pure motives, as earlier, this historical figure was willing to sell his defection for the right price. He was often described as an assassin, a killer, a thief, as greedy, vengeful, bloodthirsty, all of which can also be applied to our baritone. He was a cruel, amoral mercenary who feigned religious fervor. That was the first one. And then the second figure that he could have been based off of was Vincenzo Speziale, who lived from 1760 to 1813. He was a judge in the court of Sicily with a reputation also for cruelty. He oversaw the use of torture as in Tosca, as in the opera Tosca. This finally brings us to our last section of the presentation. Why do we even care about any of this? It's my favorite question. I hope I can answer that, as of course every uh, individual person must answer for themselves why they care. I believe that, especially when learning and talking about historical operas where the time, place, and date are exact and are clearly referencing 
certain things, that context is necessary. Otherwise, you'll just have confusion. What is the Battle of Marengo? Why do I even care that someone likes Napoleon? Why do people not like the papacy? All of these questions come up when you're just reading the libretto fresh or just going to the opera for the first time. So Sardou and Puccini are just two artists in a long history of people writing about Napoleon and just tyrants in general in whatever way they may appear. Here are just two types of literature. So we have German literature with authors such as Goethe, Schiller, Kleist, French authors like Hugo, Zola, and Balzac. Students and teachers can really connect with each piece using political activism, for instance, as, as kind of a spring-off point for modern audiences. The play and the opera touch on universal themes of oppression and suffering amidst extraordinary circumstances. In practicing how to do historical analysis, students are cultivating skills that can be used elsewhere where a deep textual dive is helpful, uh, discovering the connections and what each writer artist or composer wanted, really, and why they wanted that. What motivations do they have behind all of their decisions? This should help inform their view of this piece, but also the finding historical parallels in general to the present time, allowing for a deeper connection to the work. If you can bring it to the present, they'll connect with it more. Uh, it can also help create new perspectives to the storyline, especially as one of opera's biggest criticisms is that stories might be a bit outdated. But if they know the reasons behind each plot point, each characterization, then it might be easier for them to understand the point of the story, not just take it for surface value. However, by showing students the historical parallels, making it relevant to today, by trying to find examples of these themes in modern media maybe, trying to make it as relatable to them as possible. And as Tosca is mainly about love, loss, and suffering during a time of political turmoil, I am very much assuming that students and all of us can find a little bit of themselves in the plot. Thank you very much. See Tosca at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion now until December 10th. Tickets are available at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.